question of Kanye is not just about him, it's about people who are enabling him. And I think most reasonable people can agree that what Tucker Carlson did was pretty reprehensible because what he was doing, and a lot of the people who are enabling Kanye, is taking this guy and picking and choosing what they want to share based on their own political goals. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, you got to hang out with your hero yesterday, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I was hanging out with Andrew Yang. We did his podcast. It'll be out next week. It was very fun. He's a cool guy. He's. What'd you guys talk about? Um, we talked about the midterms and then just some general um, bringing the uh, kind of forward party ideas of open primaries and stuff to the New York Post audience, which oh, wow. I'm working on doing, which is, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fun interview. He's a cool guy. Um, and very like authentic and very much like his public facing self in person. So, and what is it? Yeah. What does an appearance on Yang's podcast look like? Do you do like a full hour or just? Yeah, I think we did like a little under an hour. Um, just the two of us. I think there's also a video component and all that. Yeah, actually nearby our office here as well. So, oh, cool. He has like his yeah. own studio. Um, he was in somebody else's sort of facility that he's partnered uh -huh. with. So, yeah, well, Yang, yeah, if you're fun. listening, come by. Just record here. You know, yeah. spend some time. <laughs> You know, we're a C3, so we don't get involved in forward party politics. But, you know, but, if he wants to do nonpartisan yeah. activity, he's welcome to come down the streets. Uh, but we have a couple other things going on in the world <laughs> uh -huh. before we get to our big stories. Yes. I saw this thing on the Internet, Ricky, that I saw this thing on the Internet. It's like something like I guess your grandfather would say. But um, I printed out this tweet, <laughs> uh, which really is going to age me. I'm like a U.S. senator in a hearing here. But uh, Elon Musk is basically rounding out his acquisition of Twitter. Yeah. He just tweeted a statement this morning where he describes how he's going to lead Twitter and it really sounds like a lost lost debate ad. Actually, a lot of these sentences are almost feel cribbed from a lost debate ad. He said I'm sure that's exactly what he was thinking when he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, we should sue him for that. Or um, if he wants to work out some kind of settlement, I'm, I'm all ears. But And so he said the following. He said, the reason I acquired Twitter is because it's important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. There is currently great danger that social media will splinter into a far right wing and a far left wing echo chambers and generate more hate and divide in our society. He talks about clicks for money, which is also something we've talked about in our ads. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's stop there. He had some other interesting things to say, but uh, this tone is interesting. I find yeah, it I don't find it that surprising, honestly. Maybe because I'm I've been less off put by some of his more abrasive uh, comments along these lines. But um, yeah, I'm all for it. So if he can kind of bring this more refined leadership tone to the company, I think that's a great thing, and I'm excited. I'm I, I hope that it goes as planned. Well, he also said some stuff pointed the way to certain some innovations that he may be bringing, where he said, uh, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequence, exclamation point. He says, in addition to adhering to the laws of the land, our platform must be warm and welcoming to all where you could choose your desired experience according to your preferences, just as you can choose, for example, to see movies or play video games ranging from all ages to mature. Now, you could read that narrowly and say that's what Twitter is now because you could follow who you want to follow. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that he means something more by that statement. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what to read into that, but... I guess the I, the idea is that if you're worried about certain types of speech, you can protect yourself from it and not require that everyone else be um, shielded as well. 
Yeah, maybe Perhaps, like special like, rooms, like, you know, yeah. walled off or uh, monetized, you know, like paying a certain amount, like almost, what was it? It's like Reddit sub-communities have their own rules and stuff. I don't know. But yeah, that's what, kind of extrapolating. What was that sure. that social media platform where it was all audio? Oh, Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yeah, I that's hope what it does not become like Clubhouse. Yeah. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to do those like little Twitter uh, offshoots. Like they tried to copy Clubhouse, but that right. was just very much a pandemic blip in the system. Yeah, that's when I, when I read this, that's the sort of image I have, but yeah. you know, only time will tell. We will see. We'll find out soon. So a couple of announcements on the front end. Uh, voicemails, keep sending them our way. We have voicemail line our number is 321-200-0570 that's 321-200-0570 we also have a an episode special episode dropping this sunday about affirmative action mm -hmm. so we've interviewed people from the plaintiffs the students for fair admissions people to people at harvard university to law professors uh, civil rights leaders and we give an extensive history of affirmative action where it came from but also spend the second half of the episode examining the claims before the court and that's our first part and we have a second part where we talk about legacy admissions which we'll drop in a few weeks so if you see that on your feed on sunday there i i guarantee you there's no more comprehensive uh podcast episode about affirmative action you will be an expert after you listen to that uh second thing is if you haven't yet go to citizen stewart podcast and subscribe we dropped our first episode on our feed yesterday and we'll start uh, releasing episodes once a week every tuesday from here on out but ricky we have a really interesting show today uh yeah <laughs> later on i have an interview with greg bluestein who's a reporter from the atlanta journal constitution is like one of the foremost experts on Georgia politics. He's going to talk about the Walker Warnock race, but also the Abrams Kemp race and some interesting dynamics and potential split ticket voting there and a third party candidate, which will make mm -hmm. you really excited. There is also um, a big debate going on about trigger warnings in Broadway, but we're going to broaden that out to talk about what are these things, trigger warnings, where are they being used? Are they a good or a bad thing? But we are going to start today uh, with Kanye West and accusations of anti-Semitism. It's the fourth anniversary today of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. And obviously anti-Semitism is something we still live with every day. Kanye West has really, I think, brought this issue back to the forefront of society and you know, in a rather depressing way. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I suppose starting at the beginning with the kind of series of controversies that he's had recently is a good place. Um, it all started with wearing a White Lives Matter shirt with Candace Owens in a photo. And then not long after, he did an interview with Tucker Carlson that kind of put him in the media circuit again. And then he made claims that George Floyd's death was due to fentanyl overdose and not the kneeling on his neck. And then that was followed by a whole slew of uh, at first anti-Semitic tweets and then that he very much doubled down on in interviews. And then it later came out that Tucker Carlson had edited out portions of the interview that he that kind of put him back um, in the limelight that were very compromising both in that sense and also just in just making him appear as more mentally disturbed than I think the initial cut would have made people assume. Um, and Meaning now, like he in in the full cut, he was clearly more unhinged. There, than what there, made it onto the, the worst, the the clearest signs of mental illness were cut out of the interview. Um, it seems very deliberately, as far as I can tell. Um, Vice received 
video that it seems like it came from a whistleblower of mm-hmm. some sort from within Fox who said like this is this was actually on the cutting room floor here and this is important to know. Um, and now he's experiencing a considerable amount of fallout. Um, Balenciaga was the first to drop him. Then Adidas and G- uh, Gap dropped their um, deals with him. CAA is no longer representing him. The Met Gala says they'll no longer invite him and his net worth fell from $2 billion to $400 million overnight as a result. So it's renewed some questions about like, is this canceled? culture is this warranted um there's obviously mental health at play so it's a very complex and messy thing but i think it goes without saying that the stuff that he's saying is reprehensible right and and the conversation around it is not about defending it it's about analyzing what the fallout should be right you know charlamagne said this is one of the biggest l's that we've ever watched a human take in business and music and it was self-inflicted totally agree and i think we're gonna we're gonna divide this into two questions the first question we're gonna ask and i think this will be the shortest one is the question of corporate speech and corporate speech culture, mm-hmm. whether the corporations have an obligation to either um, tolerate certain kinds of speech or to shut down certain kinds of speech. And then we'll ask a que- we'll ask a broader question around how do you combat ideas like this? Do you ignore them or do you confront them? Uh, let's answer that first question, Ricky. We, we've talked about this free speech culture before, the difference between the First Amendment prohibition on government regulation of speech and mm-hmm. corporate civil society and just you know, average citizen obligation. Private actors, yeah. Private actors. Like a corporation. Obligation to tolerate ideas that they may disagree with. I think it's important for us to lay down the law, though, to say that doesn't mean you have to tolerate offensive ideas like this or that you, if you're a corporation, you have to do business with people who have Mm -hmm. offensive ideas, right? Yeah, and there's also a difference if you're someone's employer versus you have an association with them. Um, But, I mean, I would say for me, I I'm, understand why they did this. I think it's interesting to see that it's kind of like a watershed effect of as soon as Balenciaga did it, everyone else did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of a little bit of a social pressure there because you don't want to be the one company that doesn't. I would say I would have taken a different route if I owned one of those companies. I might have suspended a relationship with him because to me, this seems like a very obvious mental health episode that's very unfortunately become public and part of the public record. And... Um, if he if he comes out of it on the right side and looks back and says this was paranoia, this was these were bipolar symptoms coming out, then I would extend grace and allow him to continue to exist in civil society if he is proves responsible enough to do so when yeah. he's in a better state. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit less sympathetic to the mental health argument here, in part because he blames Jews for the diagnosis itself. Yeah, I don't think, I, I, don't, I don't agree that that negates it. I think this is like very clearly a parrot, like his manifestation of having a paranoid episode and thinking that there's a conspiracy against him. And that's the narrative that he's constructed. It's not to say that it's not anti-Semitic or that it might not be the, res- the result of having believed anti-Semitic things before this episode started. But I think seeing one group of people or one kind of person or some sort of conspiracy behind everything, including your diagnosis, is kind of a hallmark of paranoia. Yeah. And I actually think that that question will be answered. Because regardless of the consequences on him, he will, uh, you know, hopefully for everybody involved, make it out of this episode. If it is, in fact, a manic episode, he will come out the other side of it and he will have the ability either to repudiate his prior remarks or double down on them. Yeah. Right. So we will know the answer to that question. Yeah. One thing before we like 
decide whether or not it's a manic episode. I don't think that we have the authority to do so, but the best thing that we can turn to is his own descriptions in a more sober state of what that's like, which he told um, David Letterman about a few years ago in an interview that I think is worth um, listening to just to hear it in his own words in a more sober sense. Define it uh, for me. What is the mechanism that is malfunctioning or is taking a break in your brain, do you know? I wouldn't be able to explain that as much, just, you know, because I'm not a doctor. I can just tell you what I'm feeling at the time. And I feel a heightened connection with the universe when I'm ramping up. It is a health issue. This is like a sprained brain, like having a sprained ankle. And if someone has a sprained ankle, you're not gonna push on him more. Right. With us, once our brain gets to a point of spraining, people do everything to make it worse. I just wanna add one more quote from that interview that I think is very relevant here. He said, when you're in this state, you're hyper paranoid about everything, everyone. This is my experience. Other people have different experiences. Everyone is an actor, everything's a conspiracy. And in the Tucker, clipped that got edited out it's not just this conspiracy about jewish people it's also like really outlandish things that he was saying like there there's somebody putting child actors in his house to sexualize his kids like it's it sounds very similar to what he described as what his episodes look like obviously we can like we can't speculate we're not medical professionals but i think allowing him in a better state to just describe what this typically looks like for him is a useful thing yeah this is where i'm still not that sympathetic to him in part because he's such a public figure. It would be like, yeah. just by a metaphor, I know it's not exactly the same, but if the president of the United States was ha- was regularly having manic episodes, it's important for everybody around him, including himself, when he's not in a manic episode, to create guardrails around their public yeah, the, communication. The thing that's sad though is like, I mean, he obviously just went through a divorce and I don't know who's around him to be able to do yeah, that. Well, and I, as I we think get the, to Lex, yeah. the interviewers <laughs> around him, especially in the early, like if I were in Candace Owens's shoes or I mean, obviously she hasn't, didn't put him in the spotlight the same way that Tucker did. But had I been in Tucker's position where I said, let's actually talk for an hour. And then I saw things that were clearly disturbing to anyone who listens back, I would have said, okay, we're going to put this on hold. I'll call you in a few months and we can talk it through then. And the, like to me, that was disappointing. I think those were the guardrails, but unfortunately it doesn't really seem like he has like the social network around him and the support, which is really sad. And this is where I think it gets to the, question of Kanye is not just about him it's about people who are enabling him and I think yeah I think most I reasonable people can agree that what Tucker Carlson did was pretty reprehensible because what he was doing and a lot of the people who are enabling mm-hmm. Kanye is taking this guy and picking and choosing what they want to share based on their own political goals and so yeah. they're like all right we're going to ignore the the anti-semitism because that'll turn off our audience we're going to ignore the the more paranoid stuff we're we're going to also ignore the fact that he says he was vaccinated which is fascinating but we're going to double down on the stuff that that fits our political goals and yeah. you know and there was a there was a tweet from Ben Shapiro that to me this was back in October 12th when some of the initial stuff came out and this is what Ben Shapiro said he says I'm back from a Jewish holiday now as usual two things could be true at once Kanye's move towards pro life faith and family conservatism is encouraging but his death con three posts and black Hebrew Israelite language are clearly anti-Semitic and disturbing. Now, in Ben Shapiro is not some honest 
bystander here. Candace Owens has been in the middle of this, who works for his company. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't actually disagree with him that you can separate out certain values that have clearly been a trajectory for him from other things, or you can say, I agree with this and I disagree with this. I mean, obviously everyone is complex and complicated. I think it's different to totally obscure the the bad stuff, which is what Tucker did. Right. And I I mean, I I don't really <clears throat> agree with Shapiro. Right now I wouldn't be like amplifying anything that Kanye is doing just because I I feel like I would like to play my part in keeping it out of the public record if I were right. him. But, um, but, but I, I don't disagree something? with him saying that. Like I can agree with some of what he's saying, but also say that the other stuff's reprehensible. Yeah. And he is calling it out. Yeah, I would say, well, I, I think any close observer of Shapiro would say that there's a certain verve and volume of the you know, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar criticisms he's had of the left on anti-Semitism and the way he's treated this, which including one of his own employees is in the middle of it. But just his statement is what I'm saying is he's saying uh, like, and I don't know his full theory of the mental health stuff, but part of what I'm saying is we can't pick and choose to say, well, this idea was born out of mental illness, but this other idea isn't. And I'm I gonna... don't think he did, though. He's just saying on face value, I agree with some of what he's saying and I disagree with others. I don't think he's making a deeper point there. I disagree. I, but I do agree that there are people that like like Tucker who were more irresponsible in my opinion. Yeah. And there, there's an example of this, like the picking and choosing that I find fascinating. This guy, Jesse Kelly who's a commentator, you know, apparently a lot of people listen to his podcast. He has over 500,000 followers on Twitter. He had it back and forth with Jason Kander, a friend of mine on Twitter, where he, he, I think he gets an award for one of the worst takes of the week on this stuff. He says, Kanye looked like a loon blasting away at Jews like that. Jewish people piling on him and demanding his financial destruction in the wake of it look equally terrible. As someone without a dog in that fight, you both look cringe and nasty. And then he had a back and forth with Jason where Jason's like, hey, we created an edit button on Twitter for this. You can, the equally seems to be doing a lot of work here. And through this back and forth, something was, Jesse said something that I think is exactly why Kanye West is really dangerous right now. Because in all of this, Jesse was saying, don't worry about it. Like, like you're being fragile. And Jason, by the way, is Jewish, so he's, like, I think he has a particular reason to be worried about anti-Semitism. But uh, he says, he then goes, Jesse, he says, he talks about the mental health stuff and all that. And then he tips his hat and he goes, there are cultural tensions between the American black community and Jews going back decades. This is nothing new. So he's mixing the mental health stuff with saying, oh yeah, but this is like part of a conversation that like is outside of mental illness. And I'm like, well, no, like either it's a, it's a mental health episode or it's some kind of legitimate conversation happening between two communities, but mixing the two is disingenuous. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not, I, I think it's, we can't lump together all the people that are defending him or like to right. varying degrees. Like obviously that is, to me, I don't have an issue with what Shapiro said. That obviously takes it to another level. I mean, I I don't want to make any sort of qualitative analysis on what, what he's saying or where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously really confused and wrapped up in, a lot of other very confused narratives that have been coming out of his mouth recently, like that somebody in Paris conspired to kill his friend with cancer. And mm. he like went on for like six minutes to talk her about that. And I just, it to me, it just looks like an episode and you can, you can completely condemn the content of it and also just leave the crack in the door open for redemption if he does come back and says, that was not reflective of me. I don't know whether he's going to do that, but if he does, I think that, you know, if if I were a company, I would leave that door open and just suspend my relationship with him. Well, let's talk about one of the 
the more controversial appearances he had, but controversial in a different reason. So the for thought experiment, let's pretend for a second that Kanye West or his representatives reached out to Lost Debate to say, hey, we want to do an interview. Mm-hmm. We have three options, really. One is we could do a curated interview, which is what Tucker did. Obviously, there are many ways to do a curated interview. He chose one particularly pernicious way to do it. Two is we could do an interview and leave the entire thing up so Piers Morgan did. Piers Morgan did that. Lex Freeman appeared to do that too. Yeah. Let's play a clip of this because Lex Freeman, who's a Soviet-born Jew, spent a lot of time with Kanye. Uh, and a lot of people on the internet have a lot to say about this interview. There's somebody in your life close to you that, that you trust enough to call you out on your bullshit. We're all full of shit sometimes. What's my bullshit? Well, some of it I pointed out today, but I don't what know you deeply enough. Though? What was the bullshit? Jewish media, Jewish... That's the, not bullshit. The bullshit is that the Jewish media no, no. won't admit... Your, your dad was right. <laughs> your dad was right. The, the words you used, the... You weren't... The and point I you said were, it. You're not going to make me say it 800 more times. I don't know if it resonated, because you keep saying, like, the words... Did it resonate to y'all that y'all ain't do nothing about it? And that all y'all want to do is have somebody apologize and sweep under the rug... Your bullshit that you've been doing the whole time. You you on the same bullshit as the other people. So you're doing the same thing that the other, let's say media, because I'm not allowed to say, has done. So until somebody Which is what? Which is what, man? Which is what? I'm trying to call you out on your bullshit because I hope I'm somebody you can trust. I don't fucking trust you. Well, you should find people in your life you can trust. Don't tell me what I should do. So, Ricky, this was definitely a choice. We've often espoused on this podcast the sort of Brandeis, Obama, libertarian view of like the the cure to bad speech is good speech or something. I'm probably butchering that. More speech. This certainly seems to be testing that. What do you think? Is this a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the argument that the counter to bad speech is more speech from the person saying bad speech. Mm. It's refuting points. Um, I would say... The Tucker interview, I don't find excusable. And I think that was the start of all this. But that aside and that having been done, I, um, when Piers Morgan did the interview with him, which was a few days later, I thought that was potentially understandable because there was a chance that he might come on and say, I can't believe I tweeted that or I completely uh, apologize for it or regret it, which he did a little apologize for. But then at that point in time, I think after that interview, he called him a Karen, Piers, a Karen. Yeah, he keeps dropping that term. Yeah. Um, but at that Kanye point does, in time, yeah. like he's showing up in the same clothes. He's wearing dirty, like the same dirty sweatshirt to every single interview that he's doing. And I think when it became clear to me as an onlooker that this was not a temporary momentary thing, this is a longer episode of some sorts, I would absolutely leave the door open to do an interview at another time but i would not platform this like version of him i i wouldn't yeah i feel the same way i do love lex freeman i like his humility in in this conversation you feel for lex freeman who's yeah. just like hey man like i care about you i don't know what the relationship is but he he's using words that if you've ever had anybody in life who's really struggling with something he's 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 using empathy which, yeah, which I don't I find, condemn the Friedman thing at all. Yeah, but I I wouldn't do it personally. Yeah, it's fascinating the, the the sort of contradiction that that Kanye is saying that there's some kind of Jewish media conspiracy against him. Yet he is on a podcast hosted by a Jewish person who's giving him hours to speak it's <laughs> and nonsensical. say whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. Um, the one thing that offends me about what Kanye is saying is like he he's implying that 
um, juice-controlled medicine, and as an Indian, that's offensive to me because I feel like we've done a lot of work to corner that market. Um, <laughs> no comment on yeah, that one. <laughs> I feel like a producer is going to take that out. But uh, the so Sam Harris had a lot to say about this. Uh, I think like what's what's fascinating to me, and he basically puts Kanye in the Alex Jones world, and I think obviously the mental illness conversation is a part of this, but essentially what Paris, who I think is kind of on the more libertarian side of speech is saying is like, look, you do not have the right to demand everybody's attention, right? That is not, or you yeah, don't have the right to their attention. Like you can, you can try, but you don't have the right to, to say I must be platformed. And that's kind of where I come out on this. It's like, look, like I would take option three. I wouldn't do the Tucker option. I wouldn't do the Lex Freeman option. I would take the option of saying, I don't want to engage with this guy. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, we all do have control over where we put our attention though. And we are talking about it right now. So yeah. I think, um, you know, I I just, I hope that he comes out the other end in a more positive light. And um, having witnessed these sort of episodes before myself, I wouldn't be surprised if that turns out to be the case, but I can't guarantee it. But should we move along to our next topic here? Yeah, so what we didn't put, uh, Ricky, a trigger warning on that last yes, segment. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting that it's a decision that more and more people are making in the outside of kind of academia world, which is where a lot of um, these trigger warnings got popularized. But recently there was a revival on Broadway of the play 1776, which warned people um, going to the play that there were suggestive themes, occasional strong language, haze, a brief strobe effect, a non-firing replica firearm, and a, gun sh a gunshot sound effect. And Richard Zoglin, who is a critic who was writing for the Washington Post, responded having gone to this play and said that was completely unnecessary. He felt um, kind of uh, talked down to as an adult and the assumption that he can't handle like what is not a very controversial play to be honest he said the worst language is damn it in the entire uh, show and mm. that um, the sexual material was so mildly suggestive as to be barely noticeable and as for the re replica firearm well the country was at war wasn't it and so I think he makes a good point in the Washington Post um, with his op-ed and it's just one of many trigger warnings that we've seen in the theater world including um, the Globe Theater in London which is Shakespeare's old theatrical home which now has a trigger warning for Romeo and Juliet which most people read in like middle school and I think are just fine yeah but um, they they give, even give give advice on what organizations you can go to for advice and support if you're traumatized, which is I just a step too far. <laughs> I'm curious where this stuff comes from. This certainly wasn't around a lot when yeah. I was in school. I imagine it was pretty predominant because you were as you know, you were in NYU as recently as a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. right? I imagine you saw this a lot in NYU. Yeah, I saw it more on syllabus, like on a syllabus in the beginning of the year, would say this is in here. Um, I don't know that I ever heard a verbal trigger warning at the beginning of a class. Um, I did before reading materials, like they'd say this has X, Y, and Z sort of thing in it. But um, it started with uh, feminist circles on online communities that started just wanting to protect people without having to get rid of content entirely. I think that's the best argument for this, these things is there are people who would be traumatized by material and telling them up front is the best way to make sure that we don't have to get rid of it entirely if we want to keep a safe space for people um, regardless of their experiences. But then around 2011 is when Google search uh, starts to go up on trigger warnings. So it started to become a little more popularized. They were popping up on Tumblr and different social media platforms. And then all of a sudden, 
college kids, so it's like a bottom-up sort of thing on mm-hmm. universities, started coming in and demanding them of their professors. And um, some schools uh, passed school-wide policies. Oberlin College did in 2014 and then ultimately pulled it back. But um, there's a few other schools that, that have different variations or departments that have different variations. But um, by and large, this was like a bottom-up thing and professors said, well, I don't want to get in trouble. And we have a very um, opaque administration at many schools that, you know, it, it, you don't want to get caught up in an investigation. So, yeah, I remember the first time I heard, I read, well, at least the last memory I have, first memory I have of mm-hmm. hearing about this concept was in The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, you're very close with the authors mm-hmm. of that book. They go through, that was the first time somebody actually went through, or at least the first time I encountered this science. I'm sure it's been yeah. written about many times before that. But in that book, they talk about, here's what the goal of a trigger warning is. And here's why in certain cases, and maybe maybe many cases, we're actually doing the opposite of what's yeah. effective. Can you walk us through a little bit about what that science is? Mm-hmm. So the goal is to protect people with trauma and presumably PTSD symptoms or some degree of them from something that might trigger that uh, memory or make them extremely uncomfortable. It could be- So that's um, what the trigger means in that case? Yeah. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. elicit and, some kind of yeah. trauma. And so trauma. the argument is that that would be detrimental to their learning experience. And so there's no reason not to say, hey, just up front, if this is a thing that bothers you, it's going to be in here. Um, I think- what Greg and John were definitely talking about in the book is that that went to such an extreme where like you have trigger warnings on something like Romeo and Juliet at right. where Shakespeare was once putting on plays. Like it's it's gone to such an extreme point. It has become so pervasive. There was an NPR poll of 800 professors that found that about half of them were using trigger warnings of some sort. So professors were just doing it as like a way to protect themselves, which I don't really blame them because students report professors all the time and they're investigated for protected speech constantly on campuses. But um, Greg and John, particularly Greg, who's had mental health uh, problems himself, he is a big proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of like using exposure in a measured way to um, kind of build up an immunity to these sorts of things. And uh, a lot of the research into PTSD shows that the best way to um, kind of reel back trauma and reel back that triggering response is by doing controlled, um, controlled exposure, essentially. And so the argument is that First of all, PTSD symptoms are very rare, even in people who do have trauma. So the idea that we need to do a blanket trigger warning is kind of flawed in and of itself. Whether there's an individual student that might need separate provisions is the second question. But then the second argument is, even in that case, should professors feel like they need to be like therapists to their students right. in contexts like like criminal justice law where you're you're talking about a rape case and then all of a sudden they're not teaching rape case mm-hmm. rape cases in a class that needs to talk about that. Yeah, there was a great uh, New Yorker article by Jeannie Sue Gerson by who incidentally is uh, features prominently in our affirmative action uh, episode that we're dropping on Sunday. This was my favorite thing written about this because essentially what she says is we as professors need to bring a certain humility to the science. Yeah. And it's being positioned like professors need to take a position mm-hmm. on the science of whether uh, a trigger warning is harmful or it helps. And what she says is, look, like this is way above my pay grade. I'm doing criminal law. And essentially she's like, well, you're doing criminal law, like what you're saying. And, and this was definitely a debate back when I was in school too, but we didn't, I don't think we used the word uh, trigger warnings at the time. 
if you're going to go into criminal law, you're going to be encountering people who are like subject to uh, or engaging in like some very disturbing things yeah. by by the very nature of it. So she kind of gives like a blanket warning on the front end of the class. Um, and she says, quote, teachers should not undertake being a therapist to their students, nor should they act in ways that are known to be counter therapeutic if they can avoid it. And she says at this point, trigger warnings have developed a spin-off cultural meaning that departs from the aim of providing psychological aid to those who suffer the trauma. And so she basically talks about the uncertainty and she's like, I'm just going to move forward with a little bit of humility here. I'm going to try to provide as much information as I can, but not go overboard. That mm -hmm. seems reasonable to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that it, you could even go beyond that and say that there's a potential that it's more detrimental to students than just letting them monitor their own experience. And, you know, you get a syllabus in the beginning of the year. You're more than welcome to read through it and drop a class if you have to. But the idea that you need to prime it for everyone and make everyone feel like, oh, there might be something wrong in this class or I need to be on heightened alert, I think is detrimental. And um, Greg put it a way that I thought was really um, nice and succinct. He said, telling someone that you need to warn them something they're about to read can be scary is akin to sc playing scary music in a horror film. It primes the listener for something scary or threatening. So essentially you're already like telling people you need to be heightened and studies on um, on trigger warnings on showing people disturbing content with and without one shows that everyone gets a heightened level of anxiety, but the people that you tell there's going to be something wrong to already get a heightened level. And in one study, actually, they had more trouble with their reading comprehension afterwards, which is a, an hmm. interesting kind of measure that they used. But um, the general takeaway from the science on this is that at best, it has no effect in actually negating the distress that people have. And so I'm just not sure that um, it's really worthwhile. And I think it's also a little patronizing when you have examples of, of things like, like you can't actually watch a middle school play, essentially. Yeah. Like it's. I think the context gets really difficult in part because you have three populations that I was thinking about this morning as I'm reading this literature. One are people with anxiety disorders. Yeah. Two are people who've uh, developed trauma. And then third are people who've not yet been exposed uh, in a acute way to the trauma. Yeah. The problem with the first two populations is that there are legitimate people with anxiety disorders. There are legitimate people who've suffered trauma. But in both the case of anxiety disorders and with the term PTSD, they've they've acquired a meaning beyond diagnosis. First of all, there's a lot of evidence and debate that some of these things are being overdiagnosed, but on the trauma front, people throw around PTSD now yeah. without a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. They're using it almost like a colloquial terms. And so yeah. when people are throwing these terms around, it's hard to tell, are you somebody who's actually experienced this thing or are you just throwing it around as a metaphor? Yeah, and I think it's also worth saying that people with PTSD are a very small minority of the population. And the idea that in an, a place like a college campus where you're supposed to be wrestling with uncomfortable ideas or somewhere like when you're learning criminal law that you kind of whitewash the entire thing just in case rather than ask, waiting for someone to say like, I need a provision or, you know, like maybe if you have PTSD about like reading a rape case, criminal law is not the right place for you. And we, there's a chilling effect where professors are, 
because they know this could become a problem, just pulling back on things that they felt like a couple years ago they otherwise would have shown students. And there's not evidence that kids that graduated from law school are crippled for the rest of their lives because of what they were taught. And so I think that's an important question. And then there's also the fact that phobias can be socially learned. And so if everyone else around you seems to be triggered by something, you can develop the same anxiety just from being around them. That's a very natural human instinct. And so I just don't think there's near enough clear data that this has helped anyone. I think people in academia rolled it out in good faith because students were asking for it. And I think the scientific literature is pretty clear that it doesn't really do anything. And if anything, it kind of peeves people off when it's in settings outside of academia. And so to see it creep out more and more and more, like we're all adults and we can handle things on our own. And I think the idea that we need a a Broadway show to protect us is just a little too much for me to bear. Yeah, I went through this recently because I, I, I host a podcast with an Afghan vet who wrote about his own PTSD. I mean, like truly diagnosed significant issues with PTSD. And as the Afghanistan botched uh, pullout was happening, we had to talk about it on our show. And I had to think to myself, like, how do I bring this up? Do I talk to him about it before the episode, et cetera? And my decision at that time was, We'll just do it. We'll play clips. We'll do. We'll we'll you know talk about the the news. I'm, I don't I don't feel like I have any special like strategy for like warning him about this. Like he reads the news like I do, and we're just gonna play yeah. the clips like we normally do, and that's what we did, and it worked. But obviously, that's one context, and I think this is part of what, uh, or at least I think it worked. You never know what's going on behind the scenes, but. Part of this gets to like, there's one thing if you're in a lecture hall filled with filled with people and you just have to make a decision as efficiently as you possibly can. And then there's like, hey, if I'm in a setting with a smaller group of people, like let's say our staff, when we do our Monday morning meeting, it's like 10, 15 people and I'm playing a clip. And if I know that clip relates to something I have reason to believe somebody on our team has experienced, there's the science and me trying to figure out the science. And then there's just like manners where I'm like, all right, like I might want to give this person a heads up that there's something that that I know that they've been dealing with is going yeah. to show up in this presentation. And I would be jumping the science there just to be like, hey, I don't know what the answer is on the science. But like as, a, as just a question of manners, I'd probably just be like, hey, just so you know, there's a clip about this kind of stuff in there. Yeah, I'd, I think there's definitely a difference based on that context where that would be like as an employer for someone versus a professor is literally hired to help people grapple with ideas and difficult concepts. And, you know, when they decide that they're going to go into a certain field, there's kind of an implication that you need to do it justice. And so I think there's a difference there. And it's not to say that like no helpful provisions or no, like I, I'm sure Greg and John would totally disagree that you should like purposefully traumatize someone or expose them for right. a certain reason. Like, that's not your job either. But I think, right, I'm to worried your point about that. Candor, we were talking about that before the show. I'm yeah. a little worried that some of these people are going to read the science and be like, all right, I'm going to be the hero. I've literally and never you. heard of that. <laughs> and I think knowing what it's like to be a heterodox professor on a college campus, anyone who decided to go down the route of exposure therapy for kids with trauma would probably think twice based on the environment there. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. Here's where I think it could happen, and, and hopefully it won't, is that. Somebody's looking at their syllabus. Uh, this is like, I think, how the PC culture stuff works sometimes. It's like, I, I've read so many stories of these professors who are like, I'm going to take on PC culture. And what they wind up doing is, or just not even just professors, people generally. And instead of just being reasonable and acting without fear 
and just being normal human beings. They lean into the language as a way to be provocative, you know? And I worry that someday down the line, if this, this debate gets out of control, there's somebody out there, and this may have already happened, who's like going through the syllabus, going through their PowerPoint presentation for class, and they're like, all right, this is like, a, I don't know, a rape scene or something. And then they're just like, you know what? Like, leave it in. I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to do it with gusto because you know what? This is what the kids need. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe that's I like a know. stupid worry. but I mean, there's definitely people who are like, they want to annihilate the snowflake culture, which yeah. I'm like, to a degree I'm kind of with, but not to an aggressive degree, obviously. Um, I think, I mean, there is a little bit of a reactionary sort of um, strain, but I would say, I mean, these studies have been out for a long time and Greg and John's book have been out for a while and I've yet to hear on a college campus that somebody is like, I'm going to go gung-ho the other direction. I could be proven wrong. I'm sure there are some people who take it a little too far, but by and large, I would think this is an overcorrection and we're probably going to head back just to the way that it was before where there's just some provocative content in a college course. But um, I, I suppose there's a potential for that, but that doesn't mean we don't talk about this. And you're writing about this now, right? Yeah, we're, yeah, a, a little bit. We're touching on that, um, but mostly free speech culture and the idea that, yeah, this is, we're following up to coddling in our book and um, our stance has not changed on trigger warnings. We'll say as much as So basically that. Like a sequel to the coddling of the American Yeah, um, so we're talking a little more about cancel culture in this one and kind of using that as the hook to get people um, to talk about free speech culture and the importance of it and how both sides are perpetuating the the kind of gradual shift away from it. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be a follow-up to the original book that kind of popularized the concern that people have over trigger warnings. So, Well, in that sense, both of our segments so far, I think, are squarely within your wheelhouse. Our final one, I think, probably departs from it a little bit. I had this yeah. chance to talk to Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he is super insightful about both the Senate race in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, but also about the gubernatorial race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And he's driving around in his car, so the audio is a little tricky, but he has some really interesting things to say about the trajectory of that race and how we can look at it as we round the bend towards Election Day. So let's jump right in. So, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, set the scene for us. What's your sense of high-level momentum for the two big races that are happening in the state right now? Uh, the gubernatorial race between Kemp and Abrams and the Senate race between Walker and Warnock. Uh, what, what are the polls telling you and what does sort of the feeling on the ground tell you about where each of those two races are heading? I mean, it's incredible because not far, not, not so long ago, there was no such thing as a split ticket voter in Georgia, or it was very rare, right? In 2014, when Governor Nathan Deal won a re-election battle, he won by eight points. David Perdue won an open U.S. Senate race by the same margin. It just, it just, you know, we didn't see a split ticket notice at all. But now, there's very two, very different dynamics unfolding in the two marquee races in Georgia. Governor Kemp has a sizable lead over Stacey Abrams in the rematch in 2018, 2022. Um, Four years ago, Stacey Abrams was in striking distance in most polls. Now she's back by between five to even 10 points in some polls, even from left leaning outlets. Um, so, you know, Governor Kemp has a sizable lead that's comfortable, but he's not getting comfortable. And Stacey Abrams says the polls are basically wrong. Um, but either way, um, it's looking like Governor Kemp is, at least, is supporting confident he's headed towards the second term. Whereas in the Senate race, 
things are neck and neck. Some polls show Christian Walker up by a point or two. Some polls show some of Raphael Warnock up by a point or two. But most, if not all, polls are within margin of error. And most of the polls show both the candidates under the 50% margin they need to win an, uh, an outright victory. So it looks like this race, that Senate race, is headed towards a runoff in Georgia. So get ready for some overtime politics here. And uh, runoff, it would happen how quickly? Yeah, in Georgia, it's four weeks now, and that's confusing because the, just last year, the January 5th runoff was a nine-week spectacle. So it ruined our Thanksgivings, our Christmases, our Hanukkahs, our New Year's with ads, with almost a billion dollars in spending overall. And this cycle, we're only getting our Thanksgivings ruined. <laughs> it's going to look like a, it's going to be a four-week runoff because of a, of a legislative change that, that uh, Republican lawmakers made in 2021. And so what's going on to, to create this split circuit phenomenon between these two, these two races? Like, is, this, is this something in the DNA now of Georgia voters or, and or is there something specific to how voters perceive Kemp or Walker or Abrams and Warnock? Yeah, I don't know if this is in the DNA of Georgia voters beyond this election. I think this is very candidate specific. That's just my hunch. But on one hand, you've got Governor Kemp, who, who was kind of painted as this, uh, as this incompetent um, you know, question mark if he, went, if he won the governor's race back in 2018. And now, whether you like his policies or you don't like his policies, Georgia hasn't fallen off the map, right? Um, and the economy, the jobless rates are, are looking good. They're, 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 they're new, new lows in Georgia. Um, Governor Kemp has a record he can run on again. It's not a record that Democrats love at all, um, but you're seeing at least even some middle-of-the-road voters um, you know, signal that they're supporting him, and some of those voters might have supported Abrams in 2018. But I think the bigger, bigger dynamic is in the Senate race, where you've got a number of Republican supporters of Governor Kemp saying they just can't support Herschel Walker. And that might only be 2 or 3% of the, of the electorate polls show. Some polls show it's even higher. Um, than that. But in Georgia, 2 or 3% of the electorate in a, in a state that was as close to the Biden as it was in 2020 is a huge margin. And that alone could swing this race into a runoff. So you've got Herschel Walker's question marks surrounding his ability to be a U.S. senator, questions that's passed, his violent, erratic behavior, um, his policy blunders in the current campaign, um, his bizarre statements, all of those kind of wrapping into it. But also, Senator Warnock running um, a standout campaign by trying to appeal to the swing voters. He's doing he's doing everything you know that he can that he can think of to try to reach the middle despite his liberal voting record. And when he's asked about Joe Biden running in 2024, he's asked about liberal policies. When he's asked about the president who has a 38 percent approval rating in the most recent Georgia polls, he he steers clear. He holds Joe Biden at arm's length. He talks more of working with Ted Cruz, and Tom Tuberville, and Marco Rubio than he does of working with Joe Biden. In fact, whenever Joe Biden comes up, he usually talks about how he opposed um, some of Joe Biden's policies, including like closing a military installation on George's coast and pushing Joe Biden to take even more assertive action that came to student debt relief. So it's stuff like that that is that is you know he's he's holding out to try to appeal to these middle of the road voters who are still skeptical of Herschel Walker kind of mainstream Republicans who in the suburbs, who live in the suburbs who might have turned against 
Trump in 2016 and 2020, those are the type of voters that Herschel Walker has to worry about winning back. Right now, his campaign is almost uniformly geared towards winning the hardcore far right, right? I mean, his, his campaign, he's talking about transgender policies, he's talking about, um, he's attacking Raphael Warnock as a socialist, as an extremist. He's using a lot of the same language that Kelly Leffler used in 2020, and it's a complete shift from his earlier strategy, which was basically saying, Raphael Warnock's a good guy, but he votes with Joe Biden too often. He's gone caught off that platform and now is attacking Raphael Warnock as a bad guy who also votes Joe Biden. Well, obviously looming large are the black voters, the sizable black vote population in Georgia. You have, you've written previously about how Stacey Abrams is struggling with the black vote, uh, particularly black men. What's driving that? Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, no one thinking that Governor Kemp will get 20% of African-American vote here in Georgia. Um, you know, even getting double digits would be a huge victory for the Republican. But the fact that Stacey Abrams has geared so much of her campaign energy towards solidifying her support among the, the base of the party, and in Georgia, uh, the African-American vote is the, is the foundational block of the Democratic coalition here. Um, you cannot win a, a race in Georgia without getting, as a Democrat, without, without getting soaring turnout and soaring support um, from, from African-American voters. I mean, to put it into perspective, when former Governor Nathan Deal got 10% of the black vote in 2014, there was this monumental day for his campaign. When Johnny Isaacson, the late U.S. Senator, Republican as well, got about double digits as well, same thing. It was this standout moment. I mean, Republicans were like, holy crap, 10% of the black vote. So, you know, her challenge is not necessarily winning 90% plus of the African American vote. It's getting turnout to the point where it exceeds expectations, right? Because she'll need to get very high turnout. I mean, usually the mark is about 30%. It's long been said if you get 30% of the African American vote um, in Georgia, that's, that's part of the formula that Democrats need to, um, to get from 30% turnout, I should say turn out exceeding 30% of the black voters, then that's part of the, that's one of the sort of three, part of the three-legged stool for Democrats to win state of Georgia. Um, and she's aiming for that benchmark. And you, your sense is, even though Warnock is facing uh, a prominent figure, uh, you know, who looms large over Georgia generally, but also probably you know, in Walker, somebody who enjoys widespread name recognition across the state and in the black community, somehow Warnock is doing better with that community, with the black Yeah, group. I mean, the, yeah, the last University of Georgia poll that was done for the AJC and other media showed Warnock about 90%, which is closer to where you'd expect, um, you know, a statewide Democrat to be among African Americans, and Abrams still around 80%. Um, you know, it's not a narrative she likes, obviously, but it's also something that she has worked hard to, um, to counter. I mean, she's had events specifically aimed at black men. Um, she's been on the campaign trail with, with influential African-American leaders, uh, male leaders, who are specifically devoted to trying to turn out a black male vote. Because black women, they're going to support, they're, they're always sort of the highest, um, highest block of, in terms of turnout, highest block of voters, in fact, Democrats. It's black men, whom Democrats have always said here in Georgia, black men can vote in anywhere near the same proportion as black women. 
the Democrats would be a lot more solid footing. Um, but she's worried. The Democrats, beyond the Abrams campaign, are worried that black men are not as energized or as mobilized as they were in 2020 come out there's a theory out there right now, I think uh, getting people trying to get ahead of what they're predicting the results to be, there's a theory that national candidates generally underperform for Democrats. When you look at people like Fetterman, Abrams, you know, this was true of Gillum in Florida or uh, O'Rourke in Texas in previous cycles, that somehow there's like a local penalty that goes along with being a national figure of prominence in progressive politics. Is there any truth to that in Georgia? I think it's more nuanced here. I mean, you have to remember that Stacey Abrams has been a top target of Republicans locally here for most of the last decade, or at least the last half decade, where if you're running for dog catcher or county coroner in, in <laughs> rural Republican counties, oftentimes you're running against Stacey Abrams. I mean, I, I wrote about this back in 2019, how you know, county commission candidates nowhere near Metro Atlanta were rarely against Stacey Abrams in their campaign literature, in their in their messages to voters. And so, you know, she's had to deal with that of being a top target of Republicans here. Warnock has not, right? I mean, not only is Senator Warnock newer to the statewide stage, um, you know, even though he's pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, I was at campaign events within the early 2020 where the local mayor of small towns would have a much longer selfie line than, than, than a future U.S. senator early in his campaign. So not only is he newer to the campaign stage, um, but also, as I mentioned earlier, he, whether it be his messaging, his campaign persona, he was looked at as, as a more, I don't know what the best word is, but as, as a candidate that Republicans um, couldn't really attack based on his personality. They would, they would say he's a nice guy, but he votes the wrong way. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, Kelly Loeffler tried to call him a radical extremist, radical socialist, all that, but then there was a sense it didn't work. Um, and, and Senator Warnock won, right? And so they moved off that messaging, at least earlier in this campaign. Stacey Abrams, they have never really moved off the same messaging they used against her 2018, which is she's this sort of extremist politician funded by out-of-state interests in California and in New York who wants to bring their, their political sensibilities to Georgia. And that's been something she's grappled to deal with. Um, almost as much as he has, you know, any, any other issue. And that's really, that's, that's really uh, been a challenge for her campaign this entire cycle. And so, obviously, 2020 looms large here. You have both Kemp on the ticket, uh, but then you also have um, the future of the Secretary of State's office. And, uh, and then you also have this local case uh, of national prominence. Um, where Trump is, is squarely uh, in the sort of the sidelines of, uh, of a local prosecutor. What, um, I guess, starting with Kemp and the Secretary of State's race, uh, what are the, what's the relationship between people like Kemp and the sort of MAGA base? And what's your sense of what the sort of electioneering posture and election authorities are going to look like four years from now? if we have to replay what happened, or two years from now, when we have to replay what happened in the last presidential race? Yeah, that's such an important question because there is this tendency to, to try to put Georgia in a simple narrative of, oh, you know, this is, uh, this, uh, whatever happens in November will be a rebuke or a, or a endorsement of Trump policies. And in Georgia, that's just not the case, right? I mean, even, even if you look at Herschel Walker, who, who got 
Trump's blessing early on, uh, even before he entered the race. Certainly, you know, he, did, he didn't turn away from that endorsement. But there's a sense that Herschel Walker would have won the Republican primary without any endorsements. Right? His name recognition, his sort of football legend was so was so towering in Georgia. And indeed, there's even Democrats who say if he had run as a Democrat in an open race, he also would have won the Democratic nomination. Who knows? Maybe that's just conjecture. But um, it's certainly been you know, talked about here. And of course, with Governor Kemp, he's the guy who, who you know, in a sense, defied Donald Trump, not as much, not as straightforward as Brad Raffensperger did with that famous phone call. But he didn't call a special legislative session to overturn the results of the election, even though Donald Trump was, was tweeting with him to do so, was trying to bully him and intimidate him into doing so. And he beat back a Donald Trump challenger by 52 points in the May primary. Um, so now his relationship with the MAGA base is somewhat complicated, but um, I think the polls show where that's going. And he's consolidated the Republican base. He has 95% of GOP support the most recent polls that we have done uh, from, from the last few weeks. And so I wrote in a story not that long ago, it looks like the GOP civil war in 2022 at least is over. And the Republicans uh, have sided with, with, with Brian Kemp. We haven't heard, you know, we, we, our stories right now are not chock full of Republicans who just can't stomach voting for Brian Kemp, right? In a way that we're seeing Republicans who are saying that with Herschel Walker. Um, and that's because he's embraced the strategy of not trying to antagonize Donald Trump. I mean, I was with him, I was doing an interview with him earlier this year, where in the middle of the interview, one of Donald Trump's um, emails, his flying emails went out attacking Brian Kemp. And as the interview wrapped up, I looked at the phone, I had some text messages about it. I said, oh, Governor, you know, Kemp, uh, the, the former president's attacking you once again, here's what he's saying. And, and the governor's kind of like, okay, you know, so what's, what's new, right? And he hasn't bashed Donald Trump back he said, hey, you can always focus on his race. He won't say a bad word about, about the former president. And that strategy, you know, running on his record has worked for him. It, doesn't, it might not work with other Republicans. It's, it's a unique strategy because he's a, he's a governor and he's, he's, he has a record of the last four years to run on and not, not, not a record of what he might do in a second term. He's not really focusing on that. Um, but in Brad Raffensperger's case, you're seeing it. This is the Democratic challenge. Had Brad Raffensperger been to- toppled in the Republican primary by Jody Heiss, a congressman who, who was an election denier, who has promoted Donald Trump's election fraud lines, then it would be an entirely different race. You might see a lot of Republican crossover vote backing the Democrat being win. In this case, the opposite is happening. You're still seeing a number of Democrats signaling they support Brad Raffensperger because of his standing against Donald Trump. And at this point, they see as a double-digit lead over his Democratic opponent in the polls. And so uh, that's changed this race from the get-go. Got it. Well, thank you so much, and safe driving out there, uh, and good luck in this home stretch. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's interesting to see a libertarian candidate make a big enough dent to potentially impact the entire course of this election. Yeah, and it has something to do with the runoff, obviously, because if there wasn't a runoff, in certain cases, a third party can make a huge difference. But particularly in this case, where if you can't get to 50%, it triggers that 30-day window. That, to me, was the biggest takeaway here, is I think not not enough people are paying attention to the fact that even though we're familiar now with these Georgia runoffs, this is a shorter window that could decide the Senate again in Georgia, which would be really fascinating. Obviously, the demographic shifts and the perceptions of Abrams are also really Mm -hmm. fascinating. So we'll keep an eye on that. I I have a feeling that that race 
will be something we're not only going to be talking about between now and election day, but you know, in the weeks after, there'll yeah. be a, another obsession with the state of Georgia. So look out, people in Georgia, listeners, we may be coming your way. Well, that sounds ominous. Yep, we're going to gas up the Lost Debate jet. But in the meantime, thank you for listening or watching. Make sure to subscribe and read us on iTunes, or we don't even call it iTunes anymore, Apple Podcasts, <laughs> Spotify, wherever you listen to us. Those ratings really matter. Keep sharing the pod. We are surging up the rankings um, because of you and because of your word. It really matters to us. Listen to what Elon said on the front end. We need content that's going to depolarize us, that we're not looking to monetize for clicks. That's what Lost Debate is all about. Uh, and we'll be right back here uh, for our next episode. And make sure to listen to us on Sunday for that affirmative action episode. 